Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 8th, 2022. Um, history, in some ways, perhaps, is repeating itself. Um, we're back with the struggle between labor and capital um, in 21st century capitalism. Joe Biden signed a bill uh, in the language of CNBC, averting a rail worker strike. But this struggle between labor and capital uh, is more extensive than that. The rail workers, of course, are not happy about this, understandably, Biden forcing them to go back to work. Uh, the New Yorker describing this as a parable of contemporary American capitalism. Uh, it's not just um, it's not just uh, rail workers though are going out on strike in this age of inflation, um, strange economic times. New York Times um, uh, staffers have walked out en masse, first time in decades. Uh, the Washington Post somewhat gleefully reports. Um, thousands of workers at U.S. airports are planning rallies and strikes in terms of better working conditions. Academics are on strike. Everyone from the new school in New York through to um, UC Berkeley and the UC system. Um, everywhere, it seems, people are on strike. And some politicians like Bernie Sanders are actually uh, very happy about this, understandably. Uh, my guest today um, is an authority on labor and strikes. He's the author of a couple of books, um, The Last Great Strike, uh, a book about the Great Strike of 1937, and his most recent book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. He teaches uh, in Colorado, and he's joining us from Boulder today, Ahmed White. Ahmed, welcome. Um, to what extent is, in your view, history repeating itself, this new cycle of conflict and tension between labor and capital? Or is it something different in 2022 from what you uh, have written about in the 20th century, 1937, and in your latest book on the Wobblies? Well, there are plenty of differences, but there's one common theme that runs through um, all of these stories, the strikes I've written about and the situation you described today, and that is uh, the alignment of the state uh, with capital at the end of the day. Um, that's where we tend to find things. And it's, it's possible to uh, acknowledge that uh, at the same time that one uh, understands the, the reality and the value of reform and the flexibility sometimes that state actors have. But at the end of the day, uh, there is, again, a common theme or thread running through the stories I've told up into the present day, and that's the alliance of the state with capital. Not everyone, of course, Ahmed, will agree with that. We'll come to that later. But let's let's talk about this latest book. It's an interesting one, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Um, tell me about the, the foundations of the book, why you wrote it, and what period you're discussing. So this is a book about um, a campaign of labor repression that was uh, focused on the industrial workers of the world, the, the wobblies, so-called, 
Uh, it mainly concerns the period just from just before the Civil War until the mid-1920s. Uh, it documents one of the most extraordinary and sustained and intensive episodes of repression in the history of the United States, and one that I believe um, played the, the leading role in destroying um, the most radical labor union uh, in this country's history. I just read an interesting book uh, uh, by Adam Hothschild. It's going to be on the show uh, in the next few weeks, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. This is the kind of concluding chapter, I guess, in the history of the Wobblies or in the history of the conflict between the American state and the Wobblies. Tell me about the origins of the industrial workers of the world. When were they founded? Um, where and by whom? So this is a union that was founded in the summer of 1905 in Chicago. And it was founded by uh, a diverse collection of radicals, some anarchist, uh, some socialist, uh, some more conventional unionist, trade unionist. All of them, all of them, I think, uh, fair to say, uh, frustrated with the lack of effective representation for industrial workers in America, particularly those who were uh, either unskilled or semi-skilled and who had, with few exceptions, with uh, very little union representation uh, in this country and whose uh, life conditions and working conditions were often quite abysmal. Um, at the same time, though, it wasn't just about providing these people with effective union representation. It was also uh, from its inception, a radical organization bent on overthrowing the wage labor system as its, um, its adherents called it and replacing this with what they uh, imagined would be a workers' commonwealth. So they were, to, to use the S word, socialists, Ahmed? They didn't they were socialists in the idea of capitalism or were they willing to compromise with the, the market system or did they simply believe that it couldn't work from the they were They were... Out? distinguished by their uncompromising view. Uh, they, they meant to bring down capitalism. And although their outlook was socialist, they were distinguished from most socialists by their antipathy to the state. They, they didn't imagine the state as um, a means of, of, of erecting socialism. They were unlike, say, the communists bent on capturing uh, the state and, and using it to build a socialist society. Uh, they thought the state was an implacable foe and that uh, union activism and radicalism uh, should um, occur outside of its orbit and in conflict with it. They were, in that sense, um, strongly syndicalist in their, uh, in their socialism. I mean, reading books like the, the Half-Child book and yours, one gets the impression that the Wobblies were actually larger than they were. There was a, an obsession, a fetish with them, both on the right and perhaps on the left. How large were they? How many people were members of this union? And, and, and were they ever the kind of threat that, to capitalism that, that people, particularly on the right, um, argued? So there's um, been long-standing debate about how large the organization was. And that's understandable because there's a, a real paucity of records, in part because of the 
repression the union endured, a lot of the records were, were confiscated and destroyed, or the union never amassed them in the first place for fear of them falling into... Uh, uh, sorry to, 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 to interrupt, Ahmed. Were they legal? Was, 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 were the Wobblers, um, was this a legal organization well, or was it always underground? They were in, as, as some have put it, a legal twilight zone. Uh, they always operated above ground, unlike, say, the Communist Party at various times. Um, but by 1917, with the enactment of laws designed to drive the union out of existence, uh, their legality was, was very much in doubt. And in fact, by, I would say, uh, the end of 1917 and certainly through 1918, 1919 and beyond, in much of the country, it was essentially illegal to be in the union and people were being prosecuted and convicted and sent to prison on the basis of nothing more than the fact they were in the organization. So in that sense, uh, the, the, the entity, the union was, was not legal, uh, even though at no point was some law passed that said uh, on its face, the industrial workers of the world cannot exist in this country. So that gray zone, again, it was not unique in American history or in fact in, in the history of most um, modern industrial systems. It, it, would it be fair to say, Ahmed, that one major difference between the American capitalism of the late 19th, early 20th century um, and the system that was evolving in Germany and the United Kingdom, in particular, the two other perhaps most advanced capitalist states, was a political one, that there were in the UK and in Germany, politi political parties built and organized by the industrial working class, which didn't exist in America. Is that an oversimplification? Not, not, not really. I mean, certainly in uh, in in America, there they never really coalesced a um, a workers' party. The the Socialist Party operated as a political party with you know, a fair amount of success around the same time that the IWW was formed and through the period that it, it uh, confronted uh, the greatest repression. Uh, but in a relative sense, um, even the Socialist Party never really uh, became as effective or as impressive as workers' parties did elsewhere in the world. As a consequence, I mean, could one argue that the American quote-unquote, democratic system was even less representative, even less, quote-unquote, democratic than the one evolving in Western Europe, in, in, in the United Kingdom, in Belgium, in France, in Germany? Oh, in some ways, for sure. Uh, I mentioned earlier the IWW's antipathy to politics, to, to working within or about the state. Well, there are a lot of reasons for that, some ideological, but some were very practical. It was a practical... Uh, reaction to the fact that the people who comprised the union recognized they had very little access uh, to political power. Um, many of them could not vote uh, by dint of their immigrant status, or more often than that, the fact that they were migratory or transient in nature. Um, they just simply didn't have the qualifications to vote. Um, they represented what part of what was, I think, a very large um, disenfranchised segment of the American working class. 
And I don't think that that was substantially remedied uh, until the 1930s. I mean, we've done shows around this uh, quite frequently in the past, did a couple of interesting shows with Michael um, Michael Lind, who, who has a book out, The New Class War, and then Thomas Frank, one of the historians of populism. And they both suggest that this was a moment where there was a degree of diversity within the industrial working class. Would it be fair to say that the Wobblies were diverse or were they essentially white? They were remarkably diverse in their conception and in, uh, in terms of how they imagined their organization um, would operate. Uh, they were explicitly welcoming of all comers with no regard for sex or ethnicity or race. Uh, that set them apart from most organizations in America. This was, after all, the time of Jim Crow. Uh, in terms of the actual composition of the union, it tended to be white. I mean, the majority of the members were white. And in its heyday in the late 19-teens and uh, early 1920s, the period not coincidentally when it was subject to the greatest amount of repression, uh, it uh, was especially prominent in the West among migratory workers who at the time were overwhelmingly white um, and uh, not just white, but Northern European um, and, and most of them of um, non-immigrant stock. So on the one hand, the union was extremely open and welcoming. On the other hand, its actual membership tended to be, especially by the late 19-teens and to the 1920s, uh, white and, and male. Um, there, there are some important exceptions uh, organizing uh, women workers, textile workers back east in the 19-teens and 20s, uh, even maids here in, um, in, in the Denver area. But overwhelmingly, the organization was uh, composed of, of, of white men. As I said, the, the new book is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. The title, The Iron Heel, of course, is also a very popular book by uh, Jack London, one of the, the most iconic of late 19th, early 20th century writers, a writer on the left. Uh, was, he, uh, was it London who invented the term The Iron Heel? And what do you mean by it in the book? So the, the connection to London is an interesting one. You mentioned this, the book, The Iron Heel, was extremely popular. It, it certainly was, and not least among the Wobblies, um, who viewed it as, um, in one sense, of a validation of themselves and their worldview. There, there are some very interesting and, and I think not coincidental parallels between the story that Jack London weaves there of a, uh, a failed um, uprising or revolution and the experience of the IWW. And there's good reason to believe, in fact, it's pretty clear that he was influenced by the early history of the IWW in writing that book, at the same time that the Wobblies were uh, influenced by him. They not only found validation in what he wrote, um, but they, they, I think, also viewed his, his writings as uh, an important source of tutelage about socialism, about politics, about the nature of the world. Uh, and I should also add, they, though London never um, was a member of the IWW, he was embraced as um, a supporter of the organization. And so the union's uh, uh, literature, its writings, uh, 
full of references to Jack London as uh, an IWW man. They eulogized him that way or as um, as our Jack at times they described him in that way. So there's a there's an interesting sort of symbiotic relationship between Jack London uh, and the IWW that uh, made it impossible, I think, for me not to title the book uh, Under the Iron Heel. That's that's a term that appears in IWW writings. They imagined that by certainly by uh, by 1917 or so that they were under the Iron Heel. It's not just the IWW that refers to London as our Jack. We in the Bay Area. Uh, he's an iconic figure. I was just actually up at his old estate um, in Sonoma a few weeks ago. Remarkable man. Uh, let's go back to the story of the book Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. You know, in, in, in Hosschild's world, it's a slightly different book, maybe more of a sort of a popular book rather than an academic book. He treats it as a tragedy. Uh, his, his, his scope is slightly broader, and he focuses mostly on the First World War. For you, is the struggle between the Wobblies and the state, is it a tragedy, um, a narrative of what-ifs in terms of American history? It's certainly a tragedy. I think a tragedy mainly in the sense that the Wobblies, by their own experiences, by uh, by their confrontation with, with inexorable repression, with heartbreaking um, forms of repression, ended up confirming what, at the outset, they preached about the capitalist system and the capitalist state um, to start with. They, they predicted their own, in, in some ways, their own demise at the same time that the union was, was, was I think, um, unfailingly optimistic um, in, in suggesting that it would prevail, that it would conquer, that it would, it would organize the entire working class uh, to the point where it could call this one big strike and bring down the wage labor system. Uh, the union, its members said that over and over again. At the same time, though, they predicted that the state would uh, set out to crush them, that the state would prove to be this, um, this, this, this committed ally of the capitalists, this, that the state would, in its, in its reformism, uh, would prove to be treacherous and deceptive, um, that the state would ultimately be their undoing, they ended up by their own experiences proving that to be true. And that's, that I think is the central tragedy of the Wobblies' um, experience. Um, I'm looking at your room for people watching um, uh, pictures of some heroic figures uh, on the wall behind you. Was this was there a hero missing from the Wobblies? I mean, I'm not sure if we could describe Lenin as a hero, but he was a great man, a man who understood power and how to seize power. It didn't seem as if, or it doesn't seem as if the Wobblies had a Lenin or, 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 or figures, particularly men of that stature. Of course, there were people like um, Emma Goldman uh, and other European immigrants who were activists. I'm not sure what their relationship was with the Wobblies, but was leadership missing? Was that the, the 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 fatal ingredient that the Wobblies didn't have, Amir? It it certainly became that in in part because of the repression that the organization experienced. Uh, the single biggest trial of the Wobblies, criminal trial of them, it's one of the biggest criminal cases in the history of 
the United States was the 1918 prosecution of just about 100 of its members, the union's members in Chicago for violating uh, the Espionage Act, among, among other provisions of federal law. And what that did, as some uh, scholars have described it, was to decapitate the organization. Uh, it, it resulted in the imprisonment or exile of most of the union's leadership, and that left it rather rudderless. Now, you're right, the union never had a figure on the level of, um, if one looks over my, um, my right shoulder, uh, Eugene Debs. Uh, Debs right, I was going to mention Debs. I mean, Debs is is a remarkable man, a man who what ran for president in 1916, got what, over a million votes? He, he got he got a, a million votes from prison in 19 in 1918. He'd been convicted himself of violating the Espionage Act um, in, a, in a separate trial from the trial that put all these wobblies uh, in prison. Um, and he again, he he was one of the founders, one of the founding delegates of the IWW. But along with uh, many other socialists, he drifted away from the organization in the first 10 or so years of its existence. Unlike many of these socialists, though, um, he remained uh, very sympathetic to the organization. And of he course, he was re rehabit rehabilitated in the early 1920s. President Harding invited him to the White House. Um, That's right. So he he is sort of uh, he has established himself as a rather mythical romantic figure in American history, probably in reverse to Woodrow Wilson. I mean, is Woodrow Wilson the real bad guy in this narrative? He's one of them, and in and and in a very revealing way, Wilson, of course, was the kind of quintessential progressive. Uh, in this period. Quote, unquote, um, progressive, whatever that means. Quote, unquote, in, in the meaning of the day, he, he represented a strain of progressivism then that was not only comfortable using the state to accomplish reforms like, uh, like regulating child labor or the quality of food or that sort of thing, but also very comfortable using the state to crush people who dared um, to uh, oppose the interest of people who themselves exercised a great deal of control over the state. Um, Wilson was, again, one of many progressives like that. And so the part of the story here of the destruction of the IWW is the story of progressives and their involvement in that undertaking. Um, and and he, he very much personified that. And he clearly uh, reviled the IWW and played an important role in activating the power of the state to bring that organization to its knees. An older, a more old-fashioned progressive was William Jennings Bryan, another man who ran unsuccessfully for the president several times, sometimes more effectively than others. How did, shall we say, more traditional agrarian progressives like Bryan, how did they think about the Wobblies? So there's an interesting aspect to this story. One place where the IWW was really successful in the period in which it, it faced all this repression was in rural America, and most particularly on the high plains um, in the central part of the country, up from uh, the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles and eastern Oklahoma up into the Dakotas. Uh, the union was very successful organizing uh, migratory seasonal harvest hands who brought in mainly the wheat harvest every summer. And what's interesting about that story, although the union members faced a great deal of repression there, a lot of prosecution 
uh, including for crimes like vagrancy and sometimes more serious crimes and a lot of harassment, is that the 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 core of that, um, the 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 majority of that, the worst repression the union faced emanated not from the farmers themselves, but from townspeople and professional people in the towns. Uh, they were the ones who who seemed to have the greatest amount of resentment, uh, the greatest anger, the greatest hatred for the IWW. Uh, in fact, in the northern plains, in the Dakotas, especially in, in western parts of Minnesota and into Montana, the Union uh, often found itself in, in a kind of de facto alliance with uh, populist left-leaning farmers, many of them themselves organized through something called the Nonpartisan League. And so the relationship to farmers uh, was an interesting one. And, and you're, you're quite right to anticipate the complexity of that relationship by reference to someone like William Jennings Bryan. You seem, and, and I think your book reflects this, a degree of sympathy to the Wobblies. One wonders, it's hard to say whether you'd have been a member if you'd have been around at the time. Some people might be watching this, though, uh, I mean, saying to themselves, well, it's all very well to be romantic about these people. But had they come to power, they would have set up a dictatorship like the Bolsheviks in Russia or the other socialist groups who came to power around the world. How would you respond to that? What was their take on politics and democracy itself? Were they traditional Marxists who simply rejected the idea of democracy? They were interesting in comparison to other leftists. Uh, they did not believe in violence as a lever of revolution, which set them apart from many anarchists and many, and many communists. Um, and that, that's not to say that they were pacifists, but there is something significant about being a revolutionary leftist in the way these people were and being as skeptical as they were about the power of the state and as skeptical as they were about uh, the value of violence as a means of accomplishing one's purposes. Now, I'm under no illusions that their vision would easily have been uh, realized of a workers' commonwealth. Their, their history shows, if nothing else, all the many impediments to that. And uh, I think it's fair to wonder whether there, were, there was any future in what they were trying to do, however sympathetic one may be, as, 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 as I often am. But I do find something promising and something, a kind of lost promise in, in this combination of skepticism about the power of the state and this unwillingness to turn so quickly to violence as a means of accomplishing one's purposes. Now, having said all of that, they failed, didn't they? I mean, the, the organization still exists. I should give them their due. They've had a bit of a resurgence, more than a bit of a resurgence in recent decades, and, and they're doing some, some pretty good work in organizing workers. But the organization isn't nearly as large as it was in the 19-teens and early 1920s, and, um, and, and it's not as reviled as it, as it once was. Um, but the organization that emerged in the 19-teens and early 1920s did not succeed in achieving this workers' commonwealth, and we have to reckon with that reality uh, at the same time that I think there is something interesting and very positive uh, about uh, their perspective compared to some other leftist um, organizations and radical organizations in their period. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned your other, your last book, The Last Great Strike, a strike of 
1937, a very different economic period. Is there a connection between uh, the period you write about in uh, Under the Iron Heel and the last great strike? Were there traditions maintained? Or are they quite different kinds of environments? Of course, this was at the depths of the Great Depression, a very different economic uh, environment. There are certainly some connections and some, some, some very direct ones. Uh, I, I think many of the same institutional forces um, that were in play at play in the 19-teens and 1920s um, influenced things in the 1930s, al although by that point, um, they had changed. So progressivism um, had changed in its relationship to organized labor. The New Deal can be understood as a merger of progressivism, sort of recast as, as what we call today liberalism, um, a coalition of progressivism with industrial unionism. And industrial unionism changed. So the leading force uh, in advancing the cause of industrial unionism by the 1930s was the CIO, the, the Committee for Industrial Organization, later the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And it was different than the IWW, whereas the IWW was, as I've noted, so skeptical, so even hostile to alliances with the state. Uh, the CIO was, was quite, quite... This was the organization run by Gompers? This was the organization run by John L. Lewis. Um, John L. Lewis was the leader of the CIO and um, not anyone's radical, but certainly a reformer. Now, what's interesting about the CIO is that the CIO uh, successfully recruited, uh, brought into its ranks a number of communists, uh, some holdover IWWs or Wobblies and, and some socialists, Trotskyists, other leftists, but mainly in terms of raw numbers, communists among these radicals. And they made common cause with this reformist organization that was, again, in alliance with the state, unlike the IWW. Um, and so there are some connections there, uh, I think. And I, I think some of the, the very people who had been IWW, some of whom went to prison because of that relationship to the union in the 19-teens or 1920s, resurfaced in the 1930s as organizers under the umbrella of the CIO, a, a more conventional organization. So if there's a theme here, it's what one might call the sort of domestication of the, the impulse towards radical industrial unionism, much more successful in the 1930s, but that raises the question at, at what cost. Ahmed, what have we learned from all this, we've done a number of shows about organization of contemporary unions in labor organizations in the 21st century. One with an organizer, Daisy Pitkin, who has a book out on the line, uh, a story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to build a union. Another with uh, Sarah Horowitz, whose grandfather was a very powerful labor unionist. She has a new book out, Mutualism. Um, for people, progressives, people on the left, what can we learn from your stories under the Iron Heel and the last great strike to build more lasting labor organizations, more effective labor organizations that won't get crushed as, as, uh, as, as Biden has seems to have crushed the striking rail workers? I think the story... Uh, that 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 follows from the Wobblies experience and also from the, the steel workers uh, who I wrote about in uh, in the last great strike 
can can kind of be reduced to this: that even if one is not as the Wobblies were um, um, a, a radical and a, a maximalist radical, uh, even if one is not uh, in an uncompromising way um, disdainful of the straight of the state or contemptuous of reform. One can still learn from these stories uh, what I think is a very useful skepticism uh, about the state um, and, and about um, how it's likely to comport itself in dealing with labor issues. Even if you're not a radical, like the Wobblies were trying to bring down the wage labor system, you're just trying to get for yourself um, some decent benefits like these uh, railroad workers were, uh, rail workers were, uh, it pays to see things coming. Uh, it pays not to believe that, um, that, that people in the state, that, that politicians who profess uh, a support for organized labor, who may even in some ways um, express that support, can be trusted when the pressure is brought to bear on them. Uh, I think that's that's a very important lesson for workers uh, who are organizing to learn and to remember. Are you disappointed with some of the political reaction? Bernie Sanders has been quite sympathetic, but younger members on the left, squad members, they cruised to re-election in, in the election uh, in, in the um, in the election this week. But AOC, for example. Um, voted yes on railroad worker deal. Are, are, are younger figures on the left like uh, AOC, are they somehow out of touch with the interests of the working class, Ahmed? I, I think in some ways, yes. I, I think in, in a way that reflects um, the situation that much of the left has been in in this country for, for quite a while. Uh, the interests of people on the left are, are, are dispersed and in some ways diluted. And maybe not as focused on on raw questions of class and class conflict as they used to be, and maybe not as much as they should be. 